You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. We are continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. And as each week passes by, we have taken just one or two verses, maybe three. And we started a few months ago. And now we finally finished the Beatitudes. Yes! We finally finished the Beatitudes. And so now we're going to do the passage about salt and light, and we're going to finish it today. So we're not going to go just one verse at a time. So you can feel glad that we're going to actually do a big chunk of Scripture today. And so we're going to do some Scripture reading. Why don't we all stand? So I'm just going to read it and just acknowledge it by just listening. All right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You could be seated. Have you ever heard of the term, just add a little salt? I've heard that many times, and I've taken that to heart. I took that to heart ever since I was about six years old, and I've enjoyed it. And sometimes I've added more than just a little salt, and I've been grossed out by that. But when you just add a pinch of salt to something that is bland, it really, really works. And if it's a fried food, you can add just maybe three pinches, three dashes of salt, and it tastes just as good. Case in point, you know what the best McDonald's fry is? You guys all ate at McDonald's, and you know what I'm talking about. It has to be McDonald's. It cannot be Carl's Jr., it cannot be Burger King, it cannot be In-N-Out, and it cannot be the sacred Chick-fil-A. It's got to be McDonald's, because they have some kind of trans-fat ingredient there that we all know that is bad for you, but oh my goodness, is it good. Ah, I guess they're back. They're back. (laughs) And so the best McDonald's french fry is this one, not the one that is hard and that is dry and looks golden. We think that's the good one because that is what is advertised, the land of the golden arches, correct? The best fries are the ones that are singular, that are dark colored, that's shiny. And I mean, when you lift it up into the sun, it glistens. That's soggy and long. And you, you must eat that by itself. You must eat that by itself. You cannot do what we usually do, take three or four at a time, because that would be inappropriate for that one sacred fry. And then you eat it, and oh my goodness, it transforms you. It goes into your body, and you feel the goodness of it. You might get sick afterwards, but for that moment, you feel the goodness of it. And why was it dark-colored, soggy, and glistening in the sun? Because of the extreme trans-fat content and the extreme salt which glistened in the light. But oh, are they so good? How many of you agree with me when I say that? Only the youth, because the youth don't have to worry about their 
health problems. Yes, very true, very true. But a lot of times we think that that's what Jesus means when he says, be the salt of the earth. And it's true. The salt is supposed to add flavor to it. And so it means that we're supposed to add flavor or be attractive as Christians and make our Christian values and the gospel attractive. But is that only what it means? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? What does it mean to be the light of the world? The light of the world is much more easier because we still use that type of idiom and phraseology here today. I'll be the example or be the light. But getting deeper, what did it mean back then so that we can apply it today in a more accurate way? Well, here are some main explanations and applications of what Jesus meant when he taught and preached, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. First of all, light we understand. Light we understand. But what about salt? Light we understand, but what about salt? So most of us understand the importance of salt as a preservative. It preserved meat back then from spoiling, from going bad. Because remember, refrigeration wasn't around until maybe just 100 years ago. That's it, or even less. There was no common and popular source of refrigeration. And so most cultures and most civilizations, what they used as a refrigeration agent was actually salt. The chemical uh, bindings that happen and the transactions that happen with meat would actually preserve uh, that meat from spoiling. So a lot of times what pastors and preachers and scholars will say is that the application for us is that Christians should be a preserver of Jesus' values here on this earth. And that's what it means that you are the salt of the earth. We're, we're all losing our Christian values here in America. And so as Christians, we need to be that last bastion which preserves our Christian values in our family and continue to provide that to the next generation so that they can provide that to the next generation. And if you are a Christian and working out in the workforce, you need to try your best to promote and preserve Christian-ish values in the workplace so that it could be a blessing to God and to give glory to God. And that's usually how we answer what it means to be salt. Or like I said before, some of us understand that it's something that makes something bland taste better. And so the application usually that we hear is this, that Christians should make Christianity attractive to the world by its great values so that people would desire to follow Christ as well. And this ties in into being being the light of the world. You need to, light is naturally either glaring or attractive, but if you're in darkness, light is attractive. So in this sinful world, you're to be the salt and light to attract people to Christ so that they can believe in Christ or at least glorify Christ even if they don't believe in Christ yet. But there are two other biblical meanings of salt that are less known, and I want to share with you what they are. And honestly, there are these two other ones. I've never heard any pastor ever preach about these two other ones. And which is really interesting because of the fact that I've been a Christian for over 20 years. But when you study the Bible, you run into this. First of all, did you know that salt was also a symbol of friendship in the Bible? Maybe it's because it sounds so counterintuitive to the way we use salt today. Like if I get into an argument with someone, or there's a pet peeve, I didn't like what you said about uh, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, then I'll argue with you. And then your response is, Wow, Peter, why are you being so salty? Right? Oh, wow. They're a salty couple. They argue 
all the time, right? They're, they're salty. It's not a good thing. But when you look in the Bible back then, it's sort of like the way we use, oh man, that's so bad. Like before, bad meant bad. It meant wrong. Now, because of postmodernism and what's cool, it means good. Thomas, your guitar playing is bad. It's bad, isn't it? It's awesome. Yeah, all right. So bad means good, and it may not mean bad, and you have to figure that out within the context of well, what's going on, and also my facial expression. Because if I said, Thomas, that guitar playing was bad, then, oh, okay, that's bad. That's bad. Thomas, that guitar playing was bad. Oh, it's good. It's good, right? Same thing with salt. Back then, salt actually meant um, a good thing. For example, Mark nine fifty. This is Jesus speaking himself, and a parallel passages in Mark talking about what it means to be salt or live out as salt in the world. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? True. I mean, if you, you pour the salt shaker onto your french fries and there's, there's nothing salty that, that comes out of the taste, you just put it away or you throw it away. The salt is no good. It failed in its mission. Have salt in yourself and be at peace with each other. Oh, okay, so it relates to friendship, uh, peace. Colossians 4, 6, Paul says this about salt. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So a lot of times we go, wow, you're, you're so salty in your words. Well, in the Bible, if you said you're so salty in your words, it's a good thing. It's seasoned with courteousness and grace. Numbers 18, 18 and 19, going way back in the Old Testament when Moses was writing this about what should be given to the priestly class, the Levites. He says this, their meat is to be yours, just as the breast of the wave offering and the right thigh are yours. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you, Levites, and your sons and daughters as your regular share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt. Before the Lord for both you and your offspring. So we see that another biblical meaning of salt isn't just a preservative, isn't just something that uh, attracts, but it's also symbolic of friendship, a covenant relationship of friendship and goodness between two different people. Now, did you also know that the phrase salting the earth, right? Jesus actually said, uh, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. Salting of the earth is a phrase that was used as an idiom by warriors and commanders after they would win a battle. And this is what would happen. For example, Judges 9.45, all that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. What? What are you doing? Right? Last time, you know, when we, we saw Operation Desert Shield or Desert Storm, when was the last time you heard Colin Powell on CNN say, we have defeated the enemy and we have cast salt over the city of Basra? Uh, no. N- never, never has salt been heard in modern times. Well, back in the ancient Near East, in Mediterranean culture, salt was seen as also, after war, after conquering a city, Something that would curse the ground of the city so that those who inhabited the city would not be able to come and inhabit it again. And it had the dual meaning and, and symbolism 
of also purifying and blessing the city for those who were going to come in and build over it. The winning party, the party that was conquering or was able to defeat the people in that city. And then they would then, after scattering salt and sprinkling salt all over the city, the enemies would be cursed, or it was thought that the enemy would be cursed. And then the newcomers, the new ruling party or group or culture would come in and be blessed by divinity because they salted the earth. And then they would build over the ruins of that city. And then they would make a tell. If you guys ever been to Israel, that's how tells were made. They would build a city over a city over a city over a city. And a lot of the times they would sprinkle salt over it before they would build uh, that city. Right? And this again relates to us being the light of the world. And also interesting enough how Jesus following talking about salt says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Because literally that city would become like a hill after many, many generations of conquest. It would be like a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So in addition to the previous two meanings of being salt of the earth, namely, number one, to preserve Christian values, number two, to attract people to those same Christian values and including the gospel and Christ, here are two more meanings, to be friends or to be friendly when doing so. And last but not least, number four, to curse the earthly values and to purify them by replacing it with the values of Christ. So it's not just to preserve and to attract people to Jesus, but it's also to be friendly when doing so, and at the same time realize that you're cursing the earthly values and you are purifying them by replacing it with the values of heaven, the values of Christ, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's a question and challenge to you. As followers of Jesus Christ, which I think probably 95% of us are, and even if you're a seeker, you're a follower, just a non-Christian follower, are you preserving and promoting Christian thought and values in a friendly and attractive way in a world cursed by sin? In a world cursed by sin, do we care and are we living out preserving and promoting Christian values, Jesus' values and teachings in a friendly and attractive way in a world cursed by sin? That's what Jesus is trying to teach here. He's teaching the entire Sermon on the Mount, and right near the beginning of it, after talking about the Beatitudes, he reminds us, this is not just for you. This is for everyone, because you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Think about your workplace. Think about your family. Think about your school. Think about your friendships and relationships. Are you preserving and promoting Christian thought and values in a friendly and attractive way in a world cursed by sin? All of you have different skills. All of you have different personalities. So it's going to come out in different ways. But are you doing that? Are you light and salt of the earth in wherever you go? Remember, Jesus says that you are the salt and you are the light. And again, all of these make sense when you read the overall purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the overall purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, Jesus is trying to show us and compare the values of heaven to the values of the world, and also encouraging us and commanding us to live out the values of heaven while we are on this world. Remember what Jesus' first sermon was in Matthew and also in Mark. Repent for the kingdom 
of God is now here. Or in some of your translations, the kingdom of God is near. And then he goes on and teaches about this kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. The second thing that we see here in the salt and light passage is this. Realize that we are already the salt and the light of the world. We have to remember that we are already the salt and the light of the world. So this is for those of us who think, you know what, right now I'm too busy because I have too many things going on in my life. Maybe I'm trying to get a degree, so it's really tough. Maybe there's certain situations going on with my family that's hard. But once everything settles down, then I'll be more serious in my Christian life. But we forget that Jesus doesn't say, be the salt and be the light of the world. Jesus assumes that you are already being it because he says you are the salt and you are the light of the world. The issue is not whether we want to be salt and light. Notice Jesus already presumes his disciples are the salt and the light. And this presumption is even more emphatic in the fact that he just started the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't like he finished the Sermon on the Mount and he waited a year and he's like, okay, I want to remind you, be the salt and light of the world. No, he starts off by saying, you are salt and you are light of the world. How much more so for us when the majority of us have probably been Christians for more than five years? The issue is, are we living out our saltiness and our brightness in the world as asked before? This means that being a serious and active Christian is something you are expected to do ever since your faith conversion, rather than when you are less busy with your life. So think about it. When were you saved? When did you confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? When you did that, God considers you a salt and light of the world because you've been regenerated. You've been forgiven of your sins, regenerated from your sins, filled with the Holy Spirit, and have a mission to make disciples and represent Christ in this world. And it is not when you are less busy with your life. It is not when you feel like it. It is not when you feel God's call. What? How dare you say that, Pastor Peter? You don't want us to wait for God's call? You want us just to go and be a Christian without God's call? Yes, I do. You know why? Because the Bible says that is God's call. So being a serious, 100% on-fire Christian is God's call because that's what the Bible teaches. You don't need to wait for a voice from the Lord to tell you to do that. Even in your busyness, even in the trials that you're going through, are you to live out that light and live out that salt. And you know what? Jesus understands. You know what? The apostles understand. Someone told me it's not apostles, by the way. Someone told me it's apostles. You know, every every church has those really uh, picky people, and they come up to me and say, you know, you're saying it wrong, Peter. It's not Burry. It's Barry. It's not Apostle. It's Apostle. And I looked at him, and I said, get a life. (laughs) No, I I didn't say that. I thought that, but uh, I said, okay, thank you. Thank you very much for correcting me. Uh, I will remember that for next time. And the next time, I said, hey, when Jesus was buried, and he led a group of apostles, and then the guy's wincing, like, oh, oh, trigger warning, trigger warning, right? No, just kidding. Uh, then afterwards, I, I changed. But think of the apostles understand. 
Think about it this way. Do you think that their life was honky-dory when they went around sharing the gospel? Paul's job was not just an apostle, but he was also a tent maker. Do you think his life was great, and then because of that, oh, I'm going to go and share the gospel and sacrifice for the Lord? He devotes an entire chapter on how he was bruised, beaten, shipwrecked, uh, hit with, with rods and, and lashed, and how, how he was imprisoned. On and on it goes. But then afterwards he said, although I'm, I'm bruised and all of that, I am not defeated because the Lord Jesus Christ is with me. And he's probably one of the most on-fire examples of the faith that we have. So trials and tribulations in life is not an excuse for why we're not trying to be 100% Christians. Why? Because you already are 100% Christian positionally in God's eyes. All you need to do is express that. Now, the great thing is those of us that find it hard, it's okay. That's the great thing about being a Protestant evangelical Christian who believes what the Bible actually says. Why? Because we have the forgiveness and grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands what we're going through. Just ask for forgiveness, ask for the Holy Spirit to guide you, and then get back up and start continuing to move forward. Ask yourself, am I salt and light to the people and places I go to every day? Do I even think about doing so? What will living out salt and light look like in my little kingdom or my little queendom? Because we all have our little kingdoms and queendoms, right? All of us have some money that belongs to us. Even those of us who are not working, we get allowance or we, or, or we work for at home and mom and dad give us money. All of us have those things that belong to us and not anyone else. All of us have our spheres of influence, those who we call friends that we know if we said something, it'll actually move them to be different or act differently. Those are our kingdoms and our queendoms. And are you being salt and light? Are you living out salt and life in your spheres of influence, geographically and relationally? Now, here's something even more significant. And those of you that like to do Bible study and look at the Greek and Hebrew, you're going to like this. Because when Jesus talks about salt and light, he doesn't say it in the way we say it. He doesn't say, you're salt and you're light. Live that out and be that for the world, right? He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light in the world. When you go to the Greek, it's articular. The definite article is there along with the noun of salt and light, which means that you are not just any salt and light, but you are a unique, distinct out of all the different salts and lights out there, you are salt and light par excellence. You are the best in God's eyes, salt and light of the world. And why would that be surprising? Because you're representing God himself, the creator of the universe, amongst all other philosophies and belief systems. And yes, that is true. Back then, there were hundreds of philosophies and religions vying for the attention of the typical Israeli just like it is today, vying for the attention of the typical Southern Californian. All of them claim to be figuratively salt and light. For example, back then, you have the local Canaanite beliefs. If we can turn to the next uh, uh, slide. We have the Greek gods of Homer and Hesiod, the Olympian pantheon, basically. You have various Jewish sects. 
If you were part of the Pharisees, you would live out your Judaism according to strict Pharisaical principles. If you were part of the Sadducees, you would live it out under Sadducaical principles. You have magic and the occult. We, we know that for a fact, not just by archaeology, but the apostles met some of these guys who were practicing real magic. You know, not like, hey, there's a coin behind my ear. Let me show you how it works. But real magic, like demonic magic, real spiritism. There was Hellenism also. You know, the first time I heard the word Hellenism, it was next to a Greek Orthodox church. I'm like, what is going on? Do they want to learn the doctrines of hell? This is wrong. And then I went to a dictionary because this is before the days of the internet. And I'm like, Hellenism means to live a Greek cultural lifestyle. Oh, okay, it's, it's Hellenistic, right? But there were people back then that were really into everything being Greek, the Greek lifestyle, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Roman or whatever culture, you liked the popularity and the influence of Greek culture that you became like a Greek person even though you were not. You identified as a Greek person even though you were a Jew, okay? There was political zealotry, right? Simon the zealot, person who wanted to overthrow uh, the Romans by force. There was a whole list, a doctrine, and a whole creed that they followed. And then we have the same now. We have scientific naturalism. I would say scientific naturalism is the philosophy that we follow here in Southern California. Even many of us Christians follow. Now, there's nothing wrong with scientific naturalism as long as you're a theist, and you apply theistic principles in scientific naturalism. But some of us, we don't do that. And we're a scientific natural, naturalist first before we are a Christian, which is not good. Buddhism, being conservative, right? Especially those of us that are, that are Republican. There's a whole line, party line that we, we follow, a whole lifestyle, being conservative, being Republican. Islam, postmodernism. Whatever makes you happy. Have you ever heard of that? Do what makes you happy. That's the most important thing. There's a, there's a moral dilemma. And to get out of it, what we, what we tell them and advise them isn't, what does the Bible say? Did you pray about it? What have your Christians, friends said? Instead, it's, what choice makes you more happy? Oh, choice B. Dude, that's the right choice. That's the right choice. Oh, okay. Then, you know, I'll go ahead and commit adultery and divorce the, my faithful husband or my faithful wife for the past 20 years. Uh, okay. Socialism, that's really popular these days. Astrology, have you ever seen the first page of your Yahoo page or your local newspaper? The horoscope's always there, right? Remember, that's not separation of church and state, but once you talk about how to pray, you can't have that. That's separation of church and state, right? Being woke, right? And on and on and on. But the one that Jesus tells us and teaches us that is the best and most enlightened par excellence out of everything that we see today in terms of belief systems and philosophies is the one that we Christians embody, Christianity. The salt, the light, distinct, unique, better than everything else. And for those of you that think, oh, well, that sounds kind of arrogant and snotty, better than everything else, my question to you is this. Why are you a Christian if you don't think Christianity is better and more true than every other thought system or belief system? If Christianity is just the same as everything else, then you might as well be woke or be Islam or be postmodern or be Buddhist. It doesn't matter, right? But according to Jesus, 
You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, articularly the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And we see Jesus saying similar things throughout his life. John 14.1 and John 14.6 is similar in what he teaches about salvation. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And this way, truth, and life tells us that you are the salt and you are the light of the world. And we should not be surprised because we represent Jesus who is the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the the that is above the the, right? He is unique and we are to share that uniqueness with others. And so we should be humbly confident as Christians and live out our salt and light. Now, here's what it means. Maybe some, for some of us, we still think, well, what does that mean? Uh, what does that look like? Well, the third thing that we learn is living out salt and light means doing good works for the glory of God, not us. Living out what it means to be the salt and the life means doing good works for the glory of God, not us. A lot of times we don't want to do good works because we don't want people to see us and give glory to us. No, Jesus actually encourages us this, encourages us, not encourages us, encourages us to do good works so that when people see it, they will glorify God the Father in heaven. Just as people saw Jesus do good works and they glorify God in heaven, now as followers and representatives of Christ, they will see us do good works and glorify God the Father in heaven. And the more glory God's, God gets, the better it is. Praise be to God. And we find this in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before men. How do we know that this is what he, he ultimately means? Because it says, in the same way, meaning in the same way of the previous passages of salt and light. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As followers of Christ, we should be doing good deeds a lot. You should be known for your Christian deeds. And we do this not for our salvation. I want to be clear because we always have a perennial problem of people wanting to be saved by good works. And we realize that it's not by good works that we're saved. It's by grace through faith. And good works is a product, a, a result of our salvation, not the cause of our salvation. And if there's any good works that's a cause of our salvation, it's Christ's good work on the cross for us that results in our salvation when we respond by belief. Not for our salvation, for salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, but in order to show how great our salvation is. When you do good works for the Lord and people know you're doing it because you're a Christian, people will go, wow, your religion is great. Your belief system is great. God is great. All the time, all the time, God is great, right? Well, actually, it's supposed to be good, right? But your God is great. Christianity is great. It truly is light. It truly is salt of the earth. Jesus died to save us. Now we die to save others, spiritually first and socially second. Remember Christ's lifestyle? Christ's lifestyle was this. Go to different towns, primarily in Israel, the lost sheep of God. Share the gospel and teach about the gospel. 
and then heal the sick. He sacrificed himself to teach them about God and to bring healing. Doing good works spiritually and then doing good works socially. And then Paul reflects on that and he says a similar thing. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, probably the cornerstone verses of Protestantism says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So remember, our salvation is not because of works so that we can boast, but our salvation is because of God's work so that we can then do good works that he has planned for us to do. So our job is to be that solid light. Our job is to do good works. It's part of our identity as Christians. And I think that a lot of times we don't because, but I'm not trying to beat a dead horse because I know that you guys do a lot of good work. The homeless ministry, many of you are volunteering and we don't even know about it. You're volunteering at the hospital. You're volunteering at the, sh- the, the homeless shelter. You're doing all these things. You're donating. And that's great. You're being light. You're living out light and you're living out salt. But I think some of us have forgotten how much Christianity has been the salt and the light throughout history because it is now common and taken for granted. You know, I remember two stories. One is this. When I was a college student at Biola, I went to this small, well, actually it's not small, medium-sized Chinese church in Anaheim. And the college uh, director or the college group leader said, I'm going to write on the board what you, what you think Christianity has influenced in this world. Can you write down in pop culture what is there because of Christianity? And we couldn't come up with anything. We did come up with some things. We came up with this, the cross. Duh, right? <laughs> and I was more, I have to say, because I, I went to Biola and, and studying the pastor, uh, I said some more stuff, okay? I said, the fish. The fish and the dove. And they go, oh, yeah, the fish and the dove in the back of people's cars. Yeah, the fish and the dove. And then that spurred more conversation. WWJD, right? WWJD just started coming out, right? If you've ever heard WWJD, it wasn't around, like, for thousands of years. WWJD was a movement that started back in the 80s. So what would Jesus do? And people wearing those bands and bracelets, WWJD. Well, Christian stickers. Oh, yeah, in the back, again, in the back of the cars, right? And, and that was, and other than that, it was, well, trying to be like a Christian at work or seeing Christians talk about their faith at work. But it wasn't, we couldn't find stuff that was ingrained in our culture, that it had influenced, that it had truly been salt and light and is part of our culture. And then just 10 years ago, here in youth group, one of our members stood up during our prayer and sharing time, and he's like, yeah, we were talking in our history class, and one of our, my fellow students challenged me to share what has Christianity done for the world that has been good, and I couldn't come up with anything. Not even the cross, not even the fish sticker, not even, not even any of that. And, and I'm like, wow. And you know what? The reason is we haven't been taught what Christianity has done for the world. What Christianity has done for the world is now so common that we just take it for granted. And I listed in these next two slides just the tip of the iceberg. 
Did you guys know that the growth of modern science was because of Christianity? Back then, Christians such as Galileo, yes, Galileo, the black sheep of the Catholic Church, believed in God, believed in Jesus Christ. Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, all the greats, Louis Pasteur, that we know of and heard of through our history class, through our studying of biology, all of them were either theists or the majority of them, or most of them, some of them were theists, the majority of them were Christians. They believed in Jesus Christ as the one who went to the cross to die on on the cross for our sins. And the reason why they did science was because just as priests were scientists of the word of God, scientists were the priests of the natural world. And so they saw their call as a, their science as a divine calling to understand the world, the world that God has created because we can know more about God and Jesus through the fingerprints that he has left upon the natural world. And they saw it as their priestly duty, even though they were scientists, to study the earth and understand more about God through it. The first universities were colleges and institutions that was preparing people to be Christian leaders, pastors, priests. Christians came up with the first universities in medieval Europe. Have you guys ever heard of a well-rounded education? Uh, I want you to be a scholar. You should get a quality scholastic education. That came from Christianity. Free education for all, not just for the higher classes and not just for those who are royalty. That came from Christianity, the desire for everyone to be able to know the word of God. Specifically, not Roman Catholicism, but Protestantism, Protestantism, because the Catholic Church was securing the word of God just for a select few, namely those who are more scholarly and those who are in the priestly class. And when Calvin came and Luther came, he's like, no, we got to disseminate this to everyone or else we're going to continue to follow papal authority, which is leading us to barbarism. And so they made education, learning math, learning science, learning art, especially learning reading and writing, the classical languages, in order to understand the Bible and in order to understand all of the variety of disciplines and how it relates to God, okay? And that's why it's called university, by the way. Unity and diversity. God was in the middle, and then all of the different disciplines, be it art or be it a STEM, a discipline, was revolving around the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can have a university. Now you take God out and everyone's doing their own thing. That's why the artist looks so weird compared to the engineer. Um, promotion of linear time rather than cyclical time. You know, for most of history, human beings thought time was cyclical. And so you would always go back. There, there was no understanding of progress. And there were people that thought, you know, if, if it's like this, it's always going to be like this because we're fated to go this route. If I'm a slave, I'm always going to be a slave. If I'm in a lower caste of hierarchy in the society, I'm going to always be a lower caste. It's when the Christians came in that they said, no, time is linear and it's progressing. Why? Because we have the Gospels and we have Revelation. We know it's not cyclical. It's progressing. And so there's social progress that we can expect, and it was the duty of the Christian to get that social progress. Many of the written languages 
of tribal groups in all continents. Why? Because we wanted them to read the Bible. Dr. Chow will, will testify to this. Most of the, 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 the second and third world countries' tribal groups know how to read and write and have their own language system because of Christian missionaries. And whenever, wherever a Christian missionary would go, usually their literacy rate and also their health rate would also uh, rise up because they brought in modern medicine. They brought in science, theistic science, to dispel the superstitions that they had. They brought in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for them to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, they needed to learn how to read the Bible to grow as disciples. So they brought in a a written phonetic system to help them to be able to write uh, their, their language down and be able to understand it and read it beyond just the oral tradition. The idea that all human beings are ontologically equal, regardless of race, class, and handicap, right? What we have in our Constitution was the start of that, right? Well, it's not the start, but at least in our country, it was the start. All men are created equal. You can't have that without a Judeo-Christian background. The abolishment of infanticide via exposure. You know, the, the ancient world, if you had a child and you didn't want the child, then you can just... Go from your village to somewhere far away, up in a hill where there's no shade, and you just leave them there, especially if they're a woman or they were a girl. You just leave them there and allow that baby to die because they're a burden to your family or because you didn't want to have a girl, right? And it was Christianity. When it came, they abolished that, and they, they formed the, one of the first uh, uh, foster uh, a system to care for, for kids uh, that were unwanted by people. The reformation of slavery, the legal abolishment of slavery. You know, today you can't really talk about slavery reform because that's not good enough, right? What do you mean? You're, you're telling me that there were good slave owners and there were bad slave owners? Yes, in the ancient world, there was no such thing as abolishment of slavery. So the only thing that we can look at is what was the standard of slaves from Christian home uh, uh, slave owners versus non-Christian slave owners. And we saw that because the Christian slave owners began to see their slaves as brothers and sisters in Christ, they had a better lifestyle. They couldn't let them go because they would die. They would become homeless. And so the only way to, to do it was remain in the household and continue to be slaves but have a different status as a slave. And then, of course, the legal abolishment of slavery. Christianity had a major impact in that. The popularization of the holiest sports that we have in America. Sorry, that's uh, baseball and football. It's not basketball and volleyball. I'm very sorry for those of you. But you know where basketball and volleyball started in in terms of popularity? Yes, we had that in Greece, but how was it? It was never popularized until... It came here where, where it became a money-making industry and we had basketball stars and lesser-known volleyball stars like Sinjin Smith, Eric Stoklos, Karj Karai. Yeah, you guys know who they are, right? No? Okay. The YMCA, do you guys know what that stands for? Young Men's Christian Association decided that they wanted to have a sport for active young men and so they created a game where you would have a hoop and a ball and you would... You would fight each other for it to get it in the hoop. The older men wanted to get involved, but the thing is, they got injured. 
And so they couldn't, but they wanted a sport for themselves too. And so they took the same court and put a net in the middle and said, instead of throwing it into the hoop, you just hit it to each other. And whoever is able to get the ball to the other side and get to the ground first before you're able to get it gets the point, right? And then it evolved. And then now you have people who are doing slam dunks and people are hitting it straight down on the 10-foot line. But in the beginning, it was created by the YMCA for people who wanted to, to have a sport. And on and on it goes. If we go to the next slide, the popularization of books from scrolls. Everything was scrolls. Scrolls were giant, big, cumbersome. And then we wanted everyone to learn how to read the Bible. And we wanted everyone to learn how to read commentaries of the Bible. And it was much efficient to do a codex where you take away the scroll and put them in a bound uh, rectangular structure where you can do this right? And then it said that with, by the 7th century AD, there were way more books than there were scrolls, especially in, in Europe, because of the fact that the people wanted to learn the Bible. All right, I'm out of time, but you can read through all of these. This is the light, and this is the salt of the earth that Christians have been. Let us continue in the same salt and light as those before us in little ways and also in big ways. Let's pray.